Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Well, just the fact that it's Christmas time doesn't necessarily mean that everything's at peace. In fact, maybe you've experienced quite the opposite. In the email we sent out uh, this week preparing for the sermon, I shared an illustration. this Christmas morning one year when we were young, and uh, my sister and I were not at peace and heard those familiar words from my parents, get along, you two. Yep, it was Christmas morning. Yes, we were celebrating the, the birth of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, but somehow there wasn't peace between us. Maybe you've experienced something like that. Maybe it's on a far more serious scale. This time of year can, can bring to mind the strain that exists between family members, maybe even that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ, situations where you look at the case and you say, well, it's one believer and another believer. I mean, they should be getting along, but there's not peace. It's a helpful reminder that peace is not sourced in a time of year. It's not sourced in a holiday. It's, it's not found in warm, fuzzy feelings or Christmas-decorated coffee cups or the goodies that we eat this time of year. Peace is not found in any of these things, any of the things that come along with the Christmas season. Peace is found in a person. His name is Jesus. And the Bible tells us that he is peace. He is our peace. So we're going to dig into a text today that the Apostle Paul wrote for a church that was not experiencing peace. A group of believers, hard to say how much like our own they were there in the city of Ephesus, but, but there was one major rift in their church and it had to do with their ethnicity, their culture, their heritage. There were some in the church who had been raised as Jews. And in Judaism, they'd learned the Old Testament and how to be right with God through the law. And so these Jews had trusted in Jesus as Messiah and come into the church. But then there were others in the church who had no background in Judaism. They were non-Jews. The Bible refers to them as Gentiles, but it's basically everybody who did not grow up in Judaism. And so they had been raised believing in, well, who knows what, any kind of idol or other things, paganism. And so now they've trusted in Jesus and they're in the church. And you have this collision of two very different worlds. The Jews tended to have a little bit of, well, pride or self-righteousness to them. Well, we're God's people. I mean, you're lucky he let you into this whole thing. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were a bit impatient with the particularities of the Jews. Oh, we don't need that. And so they, you know, get together. You can imagine, right? I don't 
think they necessarily had a church potluck like we have today. But we do know in the book of Acts, you remember reading it, that they got together for meals regularly. And that's where one of the very challenges kept popping up. You can imagine those raised in Judaism still continued to practice many of their dietary restrictions, not eating pig, for instance. Right, so imagine a men's breakfast with no bacon, and the Gentiles are complaining. Well, come on, get over it. It doesn't mean anything. Christ is the end of the law, right? You know, we, the Jews are a little bit in their conscience. They're uneasy with it. Their whole lives they haven't eaten this stuff, right? How, how do they find peace when there's such division in the church? Well, the book of Ephesians was written in, in some regards to help answer that question to help these believers find peace, even though there was such cultural and ethnic difference in this body of Christ. And like many of Paul's letters, the the first half of the letter tends to be the the theological meat. I mean, just the the rich teaching of the apostles. He describes uh, who Christ is and what he's done for us and the, the very foundation of everything. And then as he comes into the second half of the book, it's where he begins to teach, now here's what you need to do based on who Jesus is. So our text today is in the theology section. It's a description of who Jesus is. And we're going to work down through that, making practical applications along the way, but then I'm going to help you see from, uh, from the application side of Paul's letter how he began to apply this truth that Jesus himself is our peace. So if you haven't opened again there or don't still have it open, you can go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And here we're going to learn that Jesus is our peace in the church. Peace is not found, at least lasting peace, true peace, is not found in commonality. Oh, there's a person who looks like me. I'm sure we'll get along. Or I joked last week, right? Oh, there's a fellow Bears fan. We're going to be great friends. We can find relationship using these things, right? Oh, their kids are similar age to my kids, or they're interested in the same hobby as me. And, you know, sometimes that's helpful as we get to know one another and introductions and so forth. But let me make very clear to you today, those commonalities are not the source of peace in the church. A beautiful church is a place where people who don't have much in common love each other in Christ beyond explanation. When the world sees that, they come to a church, hopefully like ours, they say, well, not all these people look the same. They're not all from the same background. They don't do the same things. They don't have the same personalities. There's so many different kinds of people here. What knits them together? When the world sees the answer is Jesus, then the church is doing its job. So the Apostle Paul reminds the Ephesian believers of this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, and he just states it right out there for them. For he himself, talking about Jesus, for he himself is our peace. And we know he's talking about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. You could look back at verses 11 through 13 and see how he describes the differences between them. 
There's Gentiles in the flesh, and then there's also the Jews, sometimes called the circumcision. And the Gentiles were aliens and foreigners. They were far away from God. But now they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why? Because he himself is our peace. If Jesus is powerful enough to create peace between Jews and Gentiles in the early church, (laughs) then he can help us find peace in the church today. How is Jesus our peace? Let's work down through this text and understand the ways that Jesus provides peace in the church and how we can then live that out in our lives. Number one, he is our peace because he made us all one in him. Jesus is our peace in the church because he made us all one in him. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, then there's a a theological truth in Scripture that you are in Christ. And part of that being in Christ is that you are part of now what's called his body. So we all are members of one body. And friends, that extends beyond Maranatha Baptist Church. That's Those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior since the day of Pentecost until the day of the rapture, all of those people are members of that body of Christ, one in Him. Talk about uh, one who has the power to create incredible peace that spans time and history and generations and nations. Don't you love the picture in the book of Revelation when we'll be there before the throne of Christ and as John describes it in his vision, there from every tribe, tongue, and nation, they cried out, worthy is the lamb that was slain. He's our point of unity, the lamb who shed his blood for you and for me. So Paul explains this in uh, specific terms here in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made both one. Now the both here, of course, is Jews and Gentiles, like I mentioned. But he's made them both one. Well, how did he do that? Let's keep reading. He's broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Okay, pause. Now, I told you, we're in the theology section of Paul's writing here, and so a lot of big words coming one after the other here, and you can read those quickly and kind of be like, what did he just say? So let's break it down together. Paul says that Jesus has made us both one, and he has broken down the middle wall of separation. So a part of this process of making us all one in Christ is that Jesus took away some wall that was separating us. Now, that's a concept we can understand, right? If you were around during the tear down that wall speech, you can remember the significance of a wall and how it brings separation, how it brings division. We understand a concept like that. So the question is, what is the wall he's talking about? Well, I think he's using a metaphor here to describe a thing that had created division between Jews and Gentiles. What is that thing? Well, in case we didn't figure it out, I think the Apostle Paul breaks it down for us. Notice what he says next. He has broken down the middle wall of separation, verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So what was the the wall between them? I think it was the law. Wall, law. Well, that's not how we know that's what it is, but if that helps you remember it, one's forward and one's backwards with one less L. So anyway, Wall, law. So I think it's the law. 
this thing that had created enmity between them. Now, that doesn't mean the law is evil. That's not what Paul is saying here. But it clearly was a source of division. Do you remember some of the commands and ordinances in the Old Testament law for Israel? It involved them even coming out from the other nations and being separate. The law had given them instructions, specific ways to have peace with God, right? So if they sinned, they would bring some kind of an offering or a sacrifice in order to have their sin covered so they could be in ongoing relationship with God. Now, the nations outside of Israel didn't have this. To have a relationship with God, they had to come into the nation of Israel, be a part of their people. So there's, again, this division, a temptation even for the people of Israel to see themselves as greater, closer to God than the other nations. And in some senses, it was true. This was part of God's purpose for Israel. So he's broken down this middle wall of separation. Jesus has gotten the law out of the way. So it doesn't have to divide Jews and Gentiles anymore. The law had given them a standard for righteousness, and from it they became self-righteous. But the text says that Jesus abolished in his flesh the enmity. The word abolished means to render inoperative. Um, So Jesus, there, there was this law, and Jesus rendered it inoperative anymore this thing that had caused division between Jew and Gentile. Let's think about some examples of how this works in Jesus. The law, for instance, prescribed animal sacrifices as a covering for sin. Now Jesus had paid for the sins of the world himself in his own flesh, and the text says it there, he in his own flesh abolished the enmity. So he became the once for all sacrifice so that not just the individual Jew who offered the animal, but now everyone who trusted in Christ could have their sin covered. Amazing. Well, how else did Jesus take care of this? The law had established a standard of righteous living. Now those in Christ have his righteousness. He's the standard of righteous living. So before, a Jew had to try to attain to this standard of righteousness, to abide by all the practices of the law. But now it's taken care of in Christ. We have his righteousness, and now we just, I want to live like Jesus. So those in Christ have his righteousness. The, The law had divided Jews and Gentiles, but now in Christ, the two are united. God has brought them together. This standard, the law, has been taken out of the way so that Jews and Gentiles can be one now in a better way in Christ. The final phrase of our first section here says at the end of verse 15, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. The section opens with the word peace and ends with the word peace. Jesus is our peace. Here's what he did, thus making peace. He created a new entity, one new man from the two. Before there was Jew and non-Jew, and now there is just someone in Christ. A whole new identity to leave behind what was We remember studying this last week in 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. All things have passed away. All things have become new. This is part of what Jesus does when when he saves us, is he gives us a new identity. Now the most important thing about me is that I'm in Christ. 
He's our church, or excuse me, he's our peace because in the church, he made us all one in him. I remember one time uh, after a heavy, heavy sleep, I'd been in a funny position and so one of my limbs uh, had fallen completely asleep, right? Absolutely numb. And I had this scary discovery, you know, with the, one, the limb that was working, I felt something in the bed. What in the world is this? You know, and there's this moment of like, ah, what is that thing? You know, started moving it and realized it's attached. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's my arm. <laughs> Scared at first, frightened at first, but once I realized it was part of me, I wasn't going to attack it, cut it off, throw it out the window, nothing like that. Oh, it's me. All is well. A similar scenario happened one time. We were on a trip, staying in a hotel, that one of the walls in the room was just all mirrors. And I got up at some point in the night. uh, (laughs) You see where this is going. (laughs) Startled by some intruder in the room, mimicking my every action. It was me in the mirror, right? What calms us down in those scenarios? Well, on the one hand, yeah, there's no intruder, but on top of that, it, it's me. It's my, it's my arm. It's just me in the mirror. Right? You see, what Jesus has done in the church is he's made us all one. So, so it, it'd be like me going on attack mode on my numb arm in the bed. What, what's the point of that? It's me. It's me. And so with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the theological reality is that God has made us one in him. If a person truly has Jesus Christ in them by faith, then they're part of you. You're looking at more than just your brother and sister. Now they are, your family. Don't get me wrong. We talk in those terms many times. The Bible speaks that way. But the connection is actually deeper and greater even than just brother and sister. We're one new person, the body of Christ. The New Testament talks this way a lot, right? Like in the church, you are the body, right? So does the eye say to the hand, I have no need of you? And yet often the believers go kind of on attack mode on the other body parts, But this is not what Jesus designed us to be. He made us one in him. Now, for us today, the law doesn't necessarily create the same kind of division that it did for the Jews and Gentiles, right? Most of us in the room, I guess I don't know all of your stories, but most of us in the room didn't grow up in Judaism where there'd be this temptation to make the law a point of division between me and somebody else. However, What the law led to was a sense of self-righteousness, and we need to admit that self-righteousness still creates a lot of division in the church. Jesus, however, conquers our divisions over righteousness. Think about this with me. Law-based living, so maybe it's not even the Old Testament law. Maybe it's just whatever rules I've made up in my head make me a good person. This is how a person is supposed to live. There's my rules. Here's how they should live, right? So I've created that. 
Well, as I do those things, I create for myself some sense of righteousness. I'm a good person. And so as I keep my law, as I do the things that to me make a person good and right, I begin to think of myself as better than others around me. I mean, I probably would never say that out loud, but well, someday they'll learn how they should be living. Maybe I could uh, disciple them in the ways of righteous living. I've had lots of practice, hardly ever sin now that I think of it. These little thoughts sneak into our thinking and it's self-righteousness as it creates division. So suddenly I'm beginning to look down on others. Then somebody dare criticize me or point out to me where my standard of righteousness doesn't actually meet God's standard of righteousness. Oh, then you'll see the anger come. You dare pull down my righteousness? I'm a good person. Let me tell you the things I do. Let me point out the things you don't do, right? Self-righteousness creates division. It does the same thing when we fail to keep the law. So let's say I have some standard for what life should look like, what a good person is, but all I can think of is how far short I fall from that. I'm always messing up. I'm constantly thinking about how how horrible a person people must think I am. Oh, I'm falling short of every standard I've set for myself. I'm so embarrassed. And so then we still have division. Because now my standard of righteousness, even though I'm failing at it all the time, causes me to keep stepping back and withdrawing from people because of my shame and my guilt and my embarrassment. Oh, they're going to see that my life's not perfect. And so either way, our self-righteousness just destroys unity. It creates division, argument, anger. Jesus has completely overcome that. Because he did two things. <laughs> Whether or not I, th- I thought I was righteous or not, he paid for it all on the cross. So even those ways that I thought I was righteous and was committing sin of pride, right? He paid for that too. The silly standards I made for myself that didn't come from Jesus, he paid for that. He, he paid for it all, right? So he, he paid for all of my unrighteousness on the cross. And that becomes this beautiful point of commonality between all of us. Because no matter how unrighteous I am, I can look at any one of you who've trusted in Christ as Savior and say, Jesus paid for all your unrighteousness too. He paid for it. We studied that in depth last week. But not only that, he gives us righteousness. So now it's not about who's living more in this righteous standard, who's doing more, oh, I'm doing horrible, so I'm ashamed, I'm going to withdraw, or oh, I'm doing great, so I'm going to look down on everybody. No, it's wipe that all off the table. We were sinners shown grace by God. Now I'm dressed in Christ's righteousness, which I have no claim to at all. It's infinite divine righteousness. I'm not even on the same scale. And God gifted that to me. So now my only boast, the only thing I have to brag about is that Jesus died for my sins. That's it. See, it just crushes the division that comes in the church from self-righteousness because he himself is our righteousness. He himself is our peace. 
He conquers our division over identity, where we grew up and our career choices and our favorite sports teams and all of these things. Jesus becomes our primary identity. I'm in him. What do we have in common here at the church? This is a gathering of people who love Jesus because he paid for our sins and gave us his righteousness. (laughs) What a beautiful thing to have that in common with you all. I love gathering with you and delighting in our love for Jesus together. Jesus conquers our division over heritage, the kind of culture we were raised in, our nationality. I want to make something very clear about our church. This is not an American church. We are a church in America. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm really glad our church is located in America. I'm really glad it's right here in Grimes. I'm really glad for all the wonderful freedoms and benefits we can enjoy as a result of this. But we are not an American church. We are a church in America. And what I mean by that distinction is our primary identity is in Christ. Our primary citizenship is in his kingdom. And that is a delight. So cool. Jesus conquers our division over ethnicity, skin color and facial features and genealogies and ethnic traditions and all the things that could divide us. We find our union in Christ. And in fact, because he's cleansed my unrighteousness and given me his righteousness, I don't have to be scared of other ways of doing things. Maybe you've traveled to another country and experienced a different culture. There can be some interesting tension that comes up because of those things, because sometimes the way we were raised doing things, we begin thinking it's the only way to do things, or it's the only right way to do things. And all of a sudden, somebody else is doing something different. I remember visiting Holland, uh, and the first time I had breakfast there, uh, out came the bread, and okay, well, that looks familiar. Following the bread came the sprinkles. And we put butter on our bread and sprinkles all over the top. And I knew we Americans have been doing it wrong all along. (laughs) Which way's right? Eggs for breakfast or sprinkles for breakfast? Who cares? Sprinkles. Okay, we got one vote for sprinkles. My vote was for sprinkles too. You see, we we can get so wrapped up in in how I was raised or what we've always done or this is our tradition or this is our culture. No, no, no. In Christ, one new group of people united by what Jesus did for us. And then we're not scared by other ways of doing things because it doesn't touch my righteousness. You know, it's like it's like we'd be scared of finding out, oh no, I've been doing it wrong all along, and that means, oh no, no, I'm horrible. Nope. Your sins are covered by Jesus and you have his righteousness. So whatever you learn about whether you were doing something right or something wrong, you don't have to be afraid. He's covered it already. So just love Jesus and make changes. It's so freeing. Jesus is our peace. Okay, I think you're getting it. We need to keep going. Secondly, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us that he reconciled us all to God. And we talked about this last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, his emphasis here continues to be, though, what that means for the church. So notice verse 16. He says, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. 
So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 was all about what God had done, and now we're at peace with God. This passage continues to focus on what it means for the church that we are reconciled to God. So a brief review. It says that his purpose was to reconcile both groups, Jews and Gentiles, to God. You remember what the word reconcile means? It means to, to make right so we used the illustration last week of a list, right? A Christmas list of all the things you wanted for Christmas and all the things you got for Christmas. And after Christmas is done, you might go through and compare your lists. Do they reconcile? Did I get all the things I asked for? Did I get some things I didn't ask for? Or whatever it might be. When it comes to our right relationship with God and eternity in his kingdom, God's list is actually that he demands perfect righteousness, His eternal kingdom will be a place of perfect righteousness. And that's a really good thing. Please, don't be alarmed by that. That's an excellent thing because it's going to be really good. The problem is that our list looks nothing like that. It's filled with unrighteousnesses. Isaiah even says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Even the good things we try to do are dirty because they're often self-motivated or proud or, you know, there's some wrong things going on behind the scenes. So the lists are far, far apart. But in reconciliation, God in Christ clears our list of its sin by placing all our sins on Jesus. He pays for them on the cross, satisfying God's wrath for our sins. But friends, we're not just left with a blank list. God then fills our list with Jesus' righteousness. And as we learned last week, not just any righteousness, but the divine righteousness of Jesus the righteousness of God in Christ. Now the list match, they reconcile. We're at peace with God. We can be accepted by him. So that's reconciliation. But notice that he doesn't just dwell on that reconciliation. He explains what it does for the church. He reconciled them both to God in one body through the cross. Now the one body there could be referring to the the body of Christ, the one church, or it could be referring to his own body. That when he died for our sins, he was reconciling everyone to God, providing that anyone who trusted in Christ would have that reconciliation work done in them, thereby putting to death the enmity. This enmity refers to our enmity with God, right? Because here the word means to put to death. Jesus didn't put to death the law, he rendered it inoperative, but he did put to death our sin when he himself became sin for us and died on the cross. This is a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done to give us peace with God, to reconcile us with God. And it's in his body that we are made one as a people reconciled to God, all of us reconciled to God. This is an incredible truth as Jesus makes peace with God in the church that results in peace with one another. When we go Christmas shopping, sometimes uh, there's, there's a rush to get that item that you know, the person really wants. And then you learn there's, there's only one in stock. There's only one left. Maybe you've experienced that in, uh, in a store I still don't remember the details of this story, what, what store it was. It seems like it was a Best Buy, you know, some, some electronic product that I was trying to get for somebody. And uh, I'd found online that there was only one in stock. And uh, so, you know, I'm waiting in line at the store, and there are multiple registers open, and 
I start becoming suspicious of every other person waiting in line. Are they after the same item? They're going to get it before me. Then what do I do? You know. And so there's this like unspoken tension between everybody in the checkout line. What are you buying? You know. Is that the item I wanted? I don't know. We get up to the front and sure enough, somebody else had wanted the same item as me. No! But guess what? They had more in stock than the website listed. So I got up to the checkout near my enemy who had taken the last one and found, found they had one more. Ah, oh, yes, right? We were friends again. All of it's based on me and my desires, whether I get what I want, whether I have the, the thing that I wanted to buy, right? So I go from competitive enemies, you know, who's going to get the last one to, oh, yeah, well, that's great. Merry Christmas, you know, we both got the thing we wanted. But is that genuine peace? Think about it, though, when it comes to reconciliation with God, because now we have something in common. Not only have we been given peace with God, but together in Christ, we've been given peace with God. We don't have to worry about stock running low. We're not in some competition here. Like, oh man, there's a lot more righteousness coming from her life than from mine. What if he runs out of reconciliation? I got to work harder. I'm not going to make it there in time. No, it, it's all done. He paid for it all. It, it's completely reconciled. And it's not our righteousnesses that even make the difference, but all of what Jesus did, his divine righteousness. And so when we look at one another, we genuinely see fellow sinners who had their sins placed on Jesus. People that Jesus loved so much, that he, he, he chose to get on the cross in your place And not only that, but then to gift you his perfect righteousness. Friends, think about the way that changes the way we see one another. These people are our fellow friends who have known Christ's forgiveness and been granted his divine righteousness. It just just deletes all competition, (laughs) waiting in the checkout line, worrying about who's getting what. Hey, we're all okay because of Jesus. And there's such unity and peace wrapped up in that. He reconciled us all to God. So we're united in the fact that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. Think about how this empowers forgiveness. Jesus paid for my sin. Jesus paid for your sin. That means I don't need to punish you. I don't need, I I need to forgive you instead and love you uh, as Jesus showed his love for you. So often when somebody sins against me, I want to hold it against them and punish them. But if I'm willing to let Jesus pay for my sins, I have to be willing to let Jesus pay for their sins too and to forgive them for what they've done. We're united in the fact that we have Jesus' righteousness and peace with God. There's no boasting except in Christ. There's no competition. There's no anxiety. There's no withdrawal because of shame. If somebody comes to me and says, Lance, I've seen something in your life, but I think needs to be addressed. There's an issue that keeps coming up and it's not what Jesus is like. I don't have to be offended. I don't have to swing a punch because I'm at peace. I know God already knew about that thing. 
He paid for it on the cross on Jesus, and he gave me God's righteousness. And so when somebody brings something like that and say, oh, thank you. Help me see it. Help, help me understand. I want to change. I, because of what Jesus has done for me, I, I just want to live for him. So share more with me. Tell, tell me what you're thinking. What are you saying? What are you thinking? How, how can we make this right? It just disarms the body of Christ because we have peace with God. It compels peace between us. Why are we to forgive one another? Because God in Christ has forgiven us. So we now have motivation to forgive each other. All of this is so, so rich and beautiful in how it helps us to live at peace with one another. Last two examples. Somebody comes to you and admits that they've sinned against you and asks for your forgiveness. And so you think to yourself, well, wait a second. God has forgiven my sin which is far more in quantity and far worse in quality than what this one person did to me. So if God can forgive my huge pile of sin, I need to forgive you and offer you the same forgiveness that God has offered to me. These things help us in the church be at peace with one another. We come to the final couple of verses here and we see here that he gave us access to God our Father. Jesus our peace gives us access to God our Father. He came and preached peace. In this section you're going to notice there are two groups and there are a lot of terms that reference distance. <clears throat> Verse 17 opens, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Notice just a couple things as we move through these quickly. First of all, he came and preached peace. I love that about our Jesus. He spanned the distance that was between us and God. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time Jesus coming to preach peace. The last song we sang, uh, just I noticed around the room, it has bigger words, a little harder to roll off the tongue. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor. It's written in old English. I encourage you, look it up, read through the words a few times to, so, to the point that you understand them. It talks about the incredible love of Jesus to leave his place in heaven and be born as a little baby. I mean, just imagine that. He came to preach peace. We were so far from him without God and without hope in the world. He came to us. He came to us. Just gnaw on that about Jesus' personality. Love that. He came to us. He came and preached peace. And he preached to two groups. You see it in the text there. He preached to those who were far off and to those who were near. You can guess which two groups this is, the Jews and the Gentiles. Who do you think the ones who are far off were? The Gentiles. Who do you think saw themselves as near? The Jews. You got it. Jesus preached to both groups. He offered his salvation to anyone who would trust in him as Savior. Okay, so you had the, the Gentiles who were way, way far away from God, the Jews who saw themselves as very close, and in a sense they were, right? God had uh, sent his presence to be in the temple and given them a way to dwell closely with him in that sense. So they're close, still separated a little bit. He came to both groups and he preached peace, to you who are near and to you who are far. This is an incredible act of God. Verse 18 for through him we both have access 
by one spirit to the Father. Okay, we close with just a really powerful verse here. For through him, we both have access. Actually, let's talk about the temple a little bit. This really helps us grasp what Jesus is talking about here. We're not super familiar with the temple, but its basic structure was it had an exterior wall, right? And that kept those, you know, the unrighteous out. So that's, you know, we Gentiles, right? Those who did not know God, who were far from God, the, the exterior wall kept you know, everybody out who didn't belong there. The Jews could come past that first wall into the first courtyard. But then beyond that, there was a sanctuary, a special place where only the priests could go. And within that, there was the Holy of Holies, where only once a year a priest could go. If he had processed the right cleansing rituals and animal sacrifice and so forth into that holy of places, closed with a veil. And in fact, the priest would walk in with uh, a rope on his ankles in case something went wrong. He hadn't cleansed himself right or he did something wrong in there. In the holy presence of God, they could drag him out without somebody else having to go in. Holy, holy place. And so this veil was there that kept everyone out. So think about it, even the Jews really weren't that close to God. There were walls between them and God. So Gentiles, they're way outside. Jews can at least come into the temple, but there's still distance between them and the holy place of God. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was crucified to that temple veil? I could illustrate up here, that'd be kind of fun. I won't do that. Torn in two from top to bottom, an act of God down to men to open up the Holy of Holies that now, through Jesus, we have access to the Holy One. This is being brought near like like no Jew had ever imagined. We're, We're not just, you know, the Gentiles in the outer court. We're not even Jews in the inner court. We've been brought into the holy place. Because of Jesus. He came and preached peace to you who are far off, you who are near, for through him we both have access. That word access, we, we can go to him in his presence. We think of it in terms of prayer, and that's right. That's a good way to think of it. But it's more than just prayer because he says in the next phrase, by one spirit or literally in one spirit to the Father. Think about that for a moment. What's the spirit's role in all of this? When we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, where does God's Spirit go? He dwells in us. This is what Jesus predicted would happen, the baptism in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God would come dwell in us, and it's by that Spirit in us that we have access to the Father. And so the triune God, did you see it there in verse 18? All three members of the Trinity are listed there. The triune God has made a way for you to be near to Him. Through what Jesus did on the cross, the veil is torn, the Spirit indwells you so you can come talk to your Father in His very presence anytime. Whoa, that's awesome. We were far, and He brought us right in to His very presence. It's hard for us to fully grasp this 
You know, when, when guests come to your home, maybe your kids compete over who gets to sit next to them. You know, I want to sit next. I want to sit next to them. Okay, one kid on each side. We'll share it, you know. But then if you have three kids, you're really in trouble. We do this with celebrities, right? Maybe you've visited a place like L.A. or somewhere where a lot of celebrities live, and so your eyes are always kind of out. Oh, there's a crowd gathering over there. Who could it be? Let's go look. You know, take a snap a photo. Somebody famous enters the room. Everybody's kind of peering and looking. I got an autograph. We want to get close. We want to get near. And there's often pushing and shoving and trying to get as close as we can. But one of the things that brings us peace in the church is that Jesus has taken away the competition to get near to God. He's actually placed us in him, all of us. You are right there with me in Christ, near to God. Talk about a source of peace among us. I don't care what problem has come up between us. That's a strong enough foundation for us to figure it out and work through it. We have access to our Father because Jesus came and preached peace We too ought to move towards others and preach peace. Self-righteousness is repulsed by people who sin, but those who are at peace with God move toward sinners to help them hate their sin and love Jesus. We preach a gospel of peace with God. So who really cares how far away from God we were before we were saved? Now we are in Christ This changes everything. I love the wording of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, talking about the kingdom when the apostle Paul says, do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes and lists, in case we couldn't imagine unrighteousness, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's our new identity. Wherever we were before, however far from God we felt, we've now been made new and have been placed in Christ by the Spirit with access to the Father. Whoa. Jesus actually prays for this in John 17. Father, I pray for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be, hear this, one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. God has actually united us to himself. Now, I will readily admit, I can't fully explain that to you. But he's done it. And he's done it so that the world will see that Jesus is the Savior among us because we live with one another differently than we see elsewhere because we've been united to Christ. We therefore have access to the Father to come to him in our time of need. Friends, there are such beautiful truths in these passages about how Jesus is our peace in the church. Now I want you to look briefly at Ephesians 4 where Paul begins to apply these truths in the church and notice the theme of peace. Ephesians 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. We're getting very practical now. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another. That's patience with one another. Endeavoring to keep, 
Oh, I skipped something. Bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's that peace again. So he's saying, look, because you've been reconciled to God, because Jesus is our peace, it should look like these things in the church. Not trying to earn God's righteousness, but in response to God's righteousness, there should be humility and lowliness and patience with each other. Relying on the Spirit in us to be a source of peace. Showing that love that creates that bond. Jesus is our peace in the church, and so we are to live in peace. To display humility and gentleness, patience, and to bear with one another. And then, in case we'd forgotten, Paul reminds us of all that we have in common in verses 4 through 6. There's one body. One spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There is unity. Jesus is our peace in the church. Father, we thank you so much for these beautiful truths. Help us to take them to heart First, to just rest in what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. And the gospel has been so clear today. And even now, I would pray, Father, you'd work in hearts. If there's anyone here that does not know Jesus, does not have peace with you, that they would trust in his finished work on the cross even today. For those of us who have, Father, teach us to live at peace, to be quick to admit our sin with humility, to be quick to forgive the way you have forgiven us, to lay aside our self-righteousness and instead to pursue peace with one another. Oh, help us, Father, that the world may see through us that Jesus is the Savior. We thank you for him, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.